Good morning to you all. Let's just um, commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, from the bottom of our hearts for your word because it is a sure and steady place where we can find truth. Lord, I pray that we would stand on that place and live it out as we go forward from this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after we finished the third chapter of 2 Corinthians, I was honestly at a bit of a loss to know what to do next. So after some prayer and reflection, it seemed best to me to go back to the beginning of the same book and carry on to finish it all. Now I realize this is maybe a Slightly cockeyed way of doing things, but for the moment at least, I do have you in my power, and so that's what we're going to be doing. So please turn then to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll be reading through to verse 11. Our principal topic for today is suffering, and that's something I'm certain that everyone here has in common. We have all suffered, some a little some a positively eye-watering amount, but no matter the size of our suffering, there is also something else that we have shared. At some point in that suffering, everybody has at least had the thought, why me, Lord? Now, I'd love to say that I have a clear-cut answer to the, the, the why part of the question, but sadly, aside from the most obvious answer that it's the consequence of living in a fallen world, I do not. But I can at least say, with conviction, as we shall see, suffering is not without meaning for God's people, and that's the bit that can be the very worst part of the experience, that your suffering has no meaning or purpose. It's just random and cruel and careless. So let's see what Scripture has to say on that. Then 2 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Archaea. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also will you partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us 
through me. Now Paul begins here with a very typical and formulaic greeting, one you will find in a similar form at the beginning of many New Testament letters. And that's to be expected because that's how everybody wrote letters in those days. So it would be easy to just file that fact away in the moderately historically interesting part of your mind and move on to the more meaty parts. But if I look at this, there are two things that do stand out for me when I read it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Firstly, it says to me that Paul clearly understands his calling, specifically that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And secondly, he is also clear on how that came to be. It came to be through the will of God. So, here is perfect clarity of mission, and there is no misunderstanding possible by the reader, is there? There's going to be some blow-by-blow analysis of the latest chariot race. This is going to be about God, written by a man, appointed by God. There is authority and weight here behind these words. And so we should be careful to bear this in mind as we read on. Also, reading this causes me to question whether I have the same convictions as Paul. Do I understand my task as a Christian so well? Do I remember who it is who set me to that task and who equipped me and makes it possible to accomplish Or do I hide behind some kind of delusion most of the time and think that I am what I am because I'm just so very wonderful? I wonder, how would you answer those questions? And these are things that I think we all should should be asking of ourselves because our identity and purpose in Christ are the very things that should be our anchors no matter what troubles life throw at us. We need to be able to know in our hearts I am a prayer warrior, I am a Sunday school teacher, I am an evangelist, whatever. Whatever it is, I am a a real part of the body of Christ, no matter how small or large that part is. I do have a real purpose, and so the body of Christ does not function properly without me. And I should know that God put me there for a purpose. And so in all trials I can look to this part I have to know that I am part of that great vine. Let's go on now. There are three parts to this greeting. It is from Paul and Timothy to the saints, and that just means believers, by the way. We shouldn't confuse that with the common modern meaning. And it includes as the third part this phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, it's easy just to dismiss this thing as part of ritual greetings and move on, but we have to think about context. The first part of the letter is about sufferings and trials, which are things that have always happened to people. We should not be so arrogant as to believe that it's only today that humans ask that question, why me, God? Of course, this has been a continuous cry. It's gone on and on through all of history. Why me? Why me? Why me? What have I done to deserve this tribulation? However, as long as we've been doing it, there has been an accompanying difficulty. And this is that when we point that shaky finger heavenward, we're not just asking. We're also accusing. We are are accusing God for either bringing or allowing this evil to wound us deliberately. Friends, this is wrong thinking. If this is what we believe, we forget who we serve because 
right here, Paul reminds us of what it is that really fills the Lord's heart for his children. Grace and peace. We talk a lot about these two things, but what do they really mean? Well, the word grace comes from the Greek charis. And used as it is here, it means God's care or help. And the, the ultimate expression, of course, is Jesus paying for all human sin on the cross. That's an enormous amount of grace by any standard, and it shows just how far the Lord is prepared to go for the sake of help and care. Peace comes from the word irene, which is an equivalent to the Hebrew word shalom. And that's more than just some kind of chilled out feeling. Those who enjoy it have well-being and wholeness and prosperity, a much fuller and rounded out quality of life. And these are the things that God and Jesus, and it must be said the Holy Spirit, intend for us. These are the things that they desire most for us in their hearts. Grace and peace, never trial and tribulation. And so in that light, to ask why me, God, in the sense of why have you inflicted this on me, is grossly unfair to, that, to him because it's just not something he would do. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in a while. But I think right now there is a big question that has to be answered that's come from what we're talking about. You might be thinking, grace and peace, great, awesome, amazing. So why don't we have them, Dave? Well, we do, actually. If we are saved, if Jesus is our personal Lord and Savior, we most certainly do. We might not actually have them in our hands right now. The world of sin may be pressing down on us, torturing us even. But as surely as night follows day, we will fully and permanently enjoy God's grace and peace in the life we will live with Him after we die. Grace and peace were gifted to us when we repented of our sin and accepted Jesus as our Lord. And they will never, never, ever be taken away. It is true that we may well live within the shadows of a world broken by sin. But the full sun, I might say the S-O-N, is just behind the horizon. And his perfect light will be upon us soon. We must just persevere. And this isn't just wishful thinking. There are many confirmations of this inheritance in Scripture. Here's just one of them, and it's a personal guarantee from Jesus. John 10, 27 and 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. What Jesus is confirming here is that once we are His, we are His forever. The power of Almighty God ensures that there is no one at all who can come against Him and come against that promise. And once we are His, we also have the fullness of His grace and peace as a promise for all eternity. That's something worthwhile to hang on to when times are hard. 
So, so far in this apparently standard greeting, we have already met clarity of purpose, clarity of mission, and we are clear on what is really in the heart of the one who secures these things. So as we read on, we can see that Paul obviously hasn't forgotten any of these three factors, which is why he continues after that greeting with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort. Well, what is the most natural thing to do when we stop to reflect on God's grace and peace? We must give Him our thanks and blessing back, of course. One must necessarily follow the other, for we certainly don't deserve these things because we sin and sin and sin. And that's not to say that these offerings that we give Him are rituals of some kind and needed to deflect God from being annoyed with us like some kind of heathen idol. No, these are, these are just the appropriate and proper heartfelt recognitions of how great the favors are that we have been granted. These favors are many and varied. We've all enjoyed them in some way, but here Paul singles out just one. Blessings to the God of all comfort. Comfort, for this is the subject of his introduction. The Lord is the God of all comfort, able to be so for all those in any trouble, and most importantly, he uses that comfort for a very particular reason. Verse 4. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned how horrible it is to imagine a world where tribulation has no rhyme or reason. There is no meaning or value to it. But this is the world of the atheist, not the world of the Christian. And it can never be. This is because God is good. He is good through and through. There is not one evidence of evil in him at all, and therefore he cannot and never will inflict evil on anyone. Yet Satan in this fallen world can and does. It is firstly at his door we must lay the blame for tribulation. But there is another door nearby, if we're honest, because even ordinary people do evil things. We too, all of us, do things that cause trouble and tribulation for others. Now between the two, we might begin to think that there is absolutely no hope, but God is sovereign and mighty. What he will do with Satan's and our own work is to use those tribulations, both for our good and his glory, in ways that are, well, they're frankly too mysterious to understand. But there will be a day when we stand before him and marvel at what he has granted us, when we will be able to see where and how far he has brought us through trials and strife and how he has used those experiences in such marvelous ways. Through God's sovereign ability, tribulation is never meaningless for his children. And in today's text, we find that wonderful aspect of its value. Others, not me, you, not us, them around us. Our own bad experiences have real value way beyond our own education simply because we can use them for the counsel of others. Friends, let's just consider our own assembly here. We are a small church, it is true. But if you piled all of our life experience together in this room, 
do you think there would be very many things left out? I can't imagine so. And therefore, I ask you to imagine a different sort of church now, one not so bound by Baptist beige social conventions of privacy and pride. We are not all okay. I ask you to imagine a church where we have both the openness to ask and the openness to share. Do you think that would be a good church to be part of? Do you? Do you think that grace and peace would be found there? We have that on our hands, friends, but we don't often use it. When I think about trials, there is a song which I think many of you will know. It's by a lady named Laura Story that always comes to my mind. It cleverly reminds us that when we are floundering in the swamp with the crocodiles, we are usually not looking at the big picture, God's view of things. And it does so through a really meaningful question in the chorus that ought to make us stop and think. So here are the words. Blessings by Laura's story. We pray for blessings, we pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. But all the while, you hear each spoken need, yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healings come through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials in this life are your mercy in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love, as if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while, you hear each desperate plea and long that we'd have faith to believe. When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not our home. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is a revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Wow. What if the trials of this life are God's mercies in disguise? That's a fantastic question, isn't it? Because it puts a whole different slant on tribulation. And of course, I could go on at some length on this theme. But like many questions, this one begs another. Does God just leave us alone to figure out how to deal with trials? To make our own mercy, perhaps? Is he saying, there you are in some difficulty. Yeah, I can see you. I can hear you, but I reckon I'll just let you flounder around in the swamp for a bit until you've figured out how to swim. No. That's very clearly wrong because as we read here in 2 Corinthians, it says that God is the God of all comfort for his people. And that necessarily requires his ongoing engagement and action. (laughs) 
sounds very true. We might not receive this engagement in action in exactly the way we might hope. As the song says, our common prayers are for blessings and peace and comfort and prosperity and so on. But these are not always what we get. And we become hurt and angry and disappointed when these prayers aren't answered in exactly the way we require. And this is why we need a reminder such as our text today, which reminds us that despite the bond we have with God in Christ, we are still definitely going to suffer. But God is always there to comfort us. The God of all comfort. Not necessarily with a blankie and some warm milk, it must be said. But his hand is most certainly on us in some way. And further, the experience will not be without value, either for us, or it turns out, for those around us. There's quite a big chunk of today's work yet to be done. But before we go on to dissect what's left, I want to try to pull a few of the threads together. I've said a couple of times, obviously, that God's comfort will take a different form to what we'd usually hope for, but nonetheless, it's real. That's our first thread. I've also mentioned two active forms of God's comfort, which are the other threads, and foremost of these is the hope of eternal life brought by Christ. No matter what happens to believer, to a believer now, they will certainly rise to be with God, not because of what they have done, but because, what of, because of what Jesus has done. Secondly, God's ongoing comfort during our lifetimes is provided in the shape of his sovereign ability to use our tribulations to teach us and from that teaching in turn comfort others, as it says here. Okay. Do you see how these threads come together to form an unbreakable rope between us and God that will always hold us when we fall? Do you see that? Now, this presupposes, of course, that we hang on to our end. God will not fail to hold his, but unfortunately, there are always some twits who will let go when things get scary and then complain when they fall and hit their heads. Don't be that guy, please. Hang on to your end of the rope. We're left now with verses 5 to 11 which might make you afraid because we spent some time getting here. But uh, fear not. We look at these verses in the typical fashion of Paul's letter. Letters, they can cause your eyes to cross when you try to make sense of them the first time. And since I'm afraid of getting them stuck like that, as my mummy always threatened me with when I crossed my eyes, I'm going to cheat here. If I was asked to summarize these verses, I'd say that although it's not stated directly, Paul is addressing that question, why me? And the argument that he makes against the why me God question is that if Christ, the very Son of God, suffered, why should we be surprised if we might suffer too? That is the nature of the world we live in. And so the equation can never ever be one-sided. Yes, we share in the great glory of Christ's resurrection, but that came at a cost. That cost was the greatest of sufferings on the cross. We therefore cannot expect to have one without the other, 
so long as we live in a fallen world, since suffering and glory will always be connected there. But that is not the only parallel between us and Jesus. In the same way his suffering and death brought great comfort to others, so can our hard experiences too. And Paul illustrates this through his own life in verses 6 to 10. Now nobody has been able to pin down the exact nature of what happened to him since it's never explicitly stated, but the wording is suggestive of some really, really serious illness, one that was really so bad as to be life-threatening. You see how verse 9 mentions this, this phrase, the sentence of death. But Paul clearly didn't die, otherwise we wouldn't be reading these words. So, so what happened? Verse 10. God delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Paul is saying, if you want to see tribulation of note, well, just look to me. I nearly died. You to find comfort of note in that because God saved me and I am confident he will continue to save me and I am also confident that he will do the same for you. Always. Look at the time scale in this verse. Past tense. God delivered. Present tense. Does deliver. And future tense. Will still deliver. The Lord never stops his comfort service ever. It may well come as mercy in disguise. But his ear is always open to his children. And his hand is always poised for our aid your aid but also for their aid too if he does not stop his comfort why should we if we have had the great privilege of his care why should we hold it on to our, for ourselves the answer is that we cannot we must not for it is our duty to show the world what a God of grace and peace we serve so that they should turn to him too and know his constant care. Let's be that church. Let's, let's be those people who do not hold their experience and understanding of tribulation to themselves. But we share it for the comfort and consolation of others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your perspective. When we are in a bad place, it's too easy to become obsessed by ourselves in our situation. And Lord, I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, we would be able to back up a bit and just see what it is there is to learn. And then we would, we would be bold, Lord. Bold to share it with those around us. So that others who go through the same experiences might be comforted, might know your comfort and consolation, your mercy and your peace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.